Bibles to Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on a mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly amazed. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray. Lord, how thankful we are for the amazing gift of your word, for the gift of the Holy Spirit that opens your word to us. But we would confess that we are not always open to your word. We have easily distracted, fickle hearts. And so we pray that you would command the focus of our hearts in this moment, that we would see what you want us to see, hear what you want us to hear, receive the good things that you have for us, so that we, by grace, would be changed. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're God's child and you have been redeemed by His grace, You haven't just been forgiven and guaranteed a place in eternity, but you have been called to a radically new way of living. You've been called to live by faith. But faith isn't natural to us. Doubt is natural. Worry is natural playing the endless catalog of what-ifs in your mind when you wake up in the morning is natural. Envying the life of someone else is natural. Wanting control over people and situations is natural. Hoping that life will be more predictable next week is natural. Wondering why you have to go through the things you go through is natural. But faith isn't natural. And so I'd like to consider with you this morning, how does God work to craft us into people of faith? I want to make a distinction for you in the beginning here that will make more sense as we work our way through the passage. Here it is. There is a significant, maybe even profound difference between amazement and faith. You can be amazed by things, astounded by things, impressed by things that you don't actually put your faith in. I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the USA. 
We live about an hour and 15 minutes from the Jersey Shore, Atlantic Ocean. And so it's a habit for people in Philadelphia to take their summer holiday down at the Jersey Shore. We say we go down the shore. I don't know why we say it that way, but that's how we say it. We go down the shore. And at the Jersey Shore, there's a particular community called Wildwood. It has a huge boardwalk, and on that boardwalk are these big piers, and on these piers are these amazing amusement parks. And when we would take our family vacation, our children would always talk us into going to one of those amusement parks for an evening. And in the one particular amusement park, there's this most amazing ride. I guess you would call it a ride. It's about a 40-foot high metal frame. From it are hanging these elastic bands. At the bottom of it is a pouch. And some otherwise sane human being will pay seven American dollars to have themselves strapped in that pouch. They will pull them back and they will launch him back and forth over the Atlantic Ocean in the night. Now that ride amazes me. The first time I saw it, I was just like this. My family went off to ride rides. I was transfixed. But I can tell you for sure, you will not strap Paul Tripp into that pouch and launch him over the Atlantic Ocean in the night. There's a significant difference between amazement and faith. Now, we find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark. I love the Gospel of Mark. It's, it's hard-hitting and unrelenting. Mark is, is there to demonstrate, demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the Son of God. And Mark doesn't leave you with any room for neutrality. You either accept the message of Mark or you walk away and reject who Jesus actually is. But there's another theme that courses its way through Mark. It is that Jesus has collected these disciples around Him. And His attention is not that only that they would be recipients of the work of His kingdom, but they would be instruments of that work of that kingdom as well. And so Jesus was working to craft faith into these men. They weren't naturally men of faith. And he would do that by introducing the disciples to some kind of difficulty. And then in that difficulty, he would declare, he would reveal his glory. There's a bit of a gospel equation that works its way through Mark. I'll give it to you. This is suitable for putting on a card and pasting on your mirror in the morning. Here it is. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. For you mathematicians in the room, DP plus DC equals EYN. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. Now notice in this passage, we find the disciples in another moment of difficulty. They're trying to roll their way across the Sea of Galilee, and they're in trouble. They're facing this impossible headwind. They're facing this angry sea. They're totally exhausted. If you look at the time clues in the larger passage, they've probably been rowing for eight hours. And they're going nowhere fast. 
It's potentially dangerous. It's exhausting. It's frustrating. They're way beyond their strength. They're way beyond their wisdom. Now, when you read the Bible, you should read the Bible interactively. You should not read the Bible with a mental, spiritual monotone. You should interact with Scripture. And so when you come across something like this, you ought to ask the question, how in the world did the disciples get themselves in this mess? Well, look at verse 45. It says, immediately he, Christ, made his disciples row across the Sea of Galilee. No, the disciples are not in this moment because they've been foolish. They're not in this moment because they're full of themselves. They're not in this moment because they've been disobedient. They're in this moment of danger and futility and difficulty, way beyond their strength and wisdom, precisely because they've been obedient to Christ. They're exactly in the situation that Jesus wants them to be in. Now, you ought to ask this second question. Why would this God of love and mercy and grace ever want His children to be in this kind of difficulty? I thought He loved us. I thought He wanted the best for us. I thought He was merciful and kind. Why would He ever choose for any of His children to be in this kind of trial? Why? 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 Well, Jesus knows something about the boys in the boat. He knows how self-righteous they can be. He knows how full of their own wisdom they can be. He knows how reliant on their own strength they can be. He knows how much they trust their own plan and don't really haven't really fully committed themselves to God's plan yet. And so hear this. Jesus will take His disciples where they haven't intended to go in order to produce in them what they could not achieve on their own. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God will take you where you haven't wanted to go, haven't intended to go, haven't, in, haven't purposed to go, in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. You know what the Bible calls that? Grace. But it's not the grace of release. It's not the grace of relief. Oh, we want the grace of release. We want the grace of relief. And we get those in pieces, but largely they're to come. This is the grace of refinement. This is the grace of personal transformation because that's precisely between the already and the not yet, the grace that all of us need. I think there are moments when you and I are going through difficulty where we're tempted to cry out, where is the grace of God? And we're getting it. But it's not a cool drink. It's not a soft pillow. But it's grace. We had better begin to embrace. We had better begin to teach and preach. We had better begin to encourage one another. Hear this term with a theology of uncomfortable grace. 
Because often this side of eternity, God's grace comes to us in uncomfortable forms. If you're God's child and you're going through difficulty, you must not name that difficulty as a sign of God's unfaithfulness and inattention. You must not bring God into the court of your judgment and wonder if He loves you or not. That Those difficulties are a sure sign of His redemptive affection. They're a sign of the zeal of His mercy. He will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. That's grace. Uncomfortable grace, but grace. Now look back at your Bibles. It says in verse 45, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Did you read that? Walking on the sea. You're way too passive. Walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. Don't try this at home. Now think, here's the scene. The disciples are still in this difficult, uh, frustrating, futile situation. Jesus is on the shore. He sees that they're in this moment of difficulty, and He gets up. And he begins to walk across the angry sea. He begins to walk into that impossible head. When you heard it right, he walks. Now, the minute he takes that walk, there's two things that you must observe. The first is, you now know that this is the Lord God Almighty because human beings don't walk on water. This is the King of Kings who can do anything with His creation that He wants to do. And if that means walking against wind, if it means walking on material that you can't walk on, He can do whatever He wants. This is Lord God Almighty. If Mark's job was to demonstrate that Jesus is Nazareth, the Son of God, He just did it. But there's something else you need to observe. The minute Jesus takes the walk, you know what He's got in mind. The minute Jesus takes the walk, you know the purpose that is in His mind. Think with me. If all Jesus wanted to do was relieve the difficulty, He wouldn't have had to take the walk. Right? Because all He would have had to do is say a prayer from the shore, peace be still, Listen, this creation obeys His commands. Simple command. This is the King of Kings. Stop blowing. But He doesn't do that. Because He's not after the difficulty. He's after the men in the middle of the difficulty because He came to redeem them. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm in difficulty... I don't want redemption. I want the difficulty to end. 
I don't say, God, if you would just keep this hard moment in my life until I'm changed, that would be very loving. I pray, oh God, please stop it, please stop it, somehow, somehow, stop it, please stop it. But Jesus has a very, very different plan. Maybe the reason we struggle with questions of God's love is we're not on God's agenda page. What He wants for us is different than what we want for ourselves. Do you want to grow in grace? Do you want to be holy in God's eyes? Or do you want an easy, predictable life? Be honest. Well, I know what the answer often is for me. Easy life. Now, look at your your Bibles. It says that he walks out on the sea. It says he meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. Now, when the Bible says he meant to pass by them, it doesn't mean that Jesus was lost. It meant he he wanted to take a big enough ark so everybody in the boat would be sure to see him. Now, here's, here's the moment. You have to picture this moment in your mind. The wind is still blowing. The waves are still crashing. The boat is still going up and down. Nothing in the situation has changed except that now Jesus is present in the difficulty with His disciples. You have to understand this. He is doing this because He wants to redefine everything those men think about themselves, everything they think about God, everything they think about life. This moment is meant to picture the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a physical picture of everything Jesus came to do. It's all in this moment. Because he wants these men to understand that their lives now have been invaded by the person and presence of the Messiah, the Lamb, the Savior, the King of Kings. And because of that, it's impossible for them to ever be alone. It's impossible for them to ever be in a circumstance all by themselves. It's impossible for them to be left to the resources of their own strength and wisdom and righteousness. It's never ever again just them against the difficulty. It's never just, how can I figure this out? How can I get myself out of this moment? Because God is with me in every moment of my life. It's impossible for me to be alone. That's the gospel. What do you tell yourself in the storms of life? When you're going through unexpected difficulty, what do you say to you? I say this all the time to people. Often when I say it, people laugh. But I'm really quite serious. No one's more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. So you laughed. I'm really quite serious. You're in a constant conversation with yourself. Most of us have learned it's best not to move our lips. Because people will think we're crazy. And, and don't change places. <laughs> They'll put you away. But the things you say to you are profoundly important. Let me say this. 
in every moment of your life, you are preaching some kind of gospel to you. You're either preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ, reminding yourself that you're not alone, reminding yourself, although you don't understand the circumstances you are in, there's one who does, and there's that one is present with you in His power and His grace and His love and His wisdom and His mercy. Or you're preaching to yourself a gospel of aloneness and inability and partiality and poverty and you work yourself into fear and discouragement and paralysis. Be honest this morning. In your moments of difficulty, what gospel do you preach to you? Now that's really a a setup for what is said next. Now, remember the scene. Jesus, in His power and glory, is standing on the water. He's standing next to the boat. He's standing and the wind isn't moving Him. This is amazing. Next to the boat. The boat that's going up and down. The boat with these exhausted, scared guys. He's right in the middle of the storm with them. Look what it says next. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they stood and sang the doxology. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. It says they cried out, for they thought it was a ghost. They all saw him and were terrified. Now this is very interesting. They seem utterly unprepared for this moment. Utterly unprepared utterly unprepared for what Jesus would do. And we should ask the question, why are they so unprepared? They had watched Him feed a huge multitude with a little boy's lunch, with lots of leftovers. They had, saw, they had seen Him raise a little girl from the dead. They had actually watched Him calm a storm already. Yet, they are in the kind of panic you would be in if you hadn't experienced any of those things. I would ask you, when suffering or trial or difficulty enters your door, do you experience the same old panic all over again? Do you question God's goodness all over again? Do you wonder about His wisdom all over again? Do you envy the life of another all over again as if you'd never seen His glory? As we were singing the song that we sang just before I stood up, I thought, I just want to get up and not preach the passage, just say, live that song. It just, it just displays the glory of God. 10,000 reasons to put your life in His hands. You've seen His glory. If you're God's child, you've seen His glory. Yet, it's very tempting for us to panic all over again, to forget the display of glory that all of us have seen. And wonder again about His presence. Wonder again about His love. Wonder again about His goodness. 
Well, what you get next is a moment of tender, sweet grace. Jesus speaks to them and says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He doesn't stand outside the boat and start screaming at the disciples and saying, I have had it. How many miracles do you guys need? I've taught and I've taught. I've raised people from the dead. Get out of the boat. I'm getting new disciples. I've had it. Enough already. What am I supposed to do? No, he doesn't do that. And this, this, this is precious because unlike us, this is one who's glorious in patience, who's the definition of love, who's bounteous in mercy, literally mercies that are fresh every morning, form fit for that day. This is who this one is. And so he speaks with tenderness to his disciples. Don't be afraid. It is I. Now, in those words, Jesus is not just saying, remember me. It's Jesus, you know me. He's not just saying that. He's actually loading that it is I with theological content. He's actually taking one of the names of God. He's saying, don't you understand? The I am is here. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one on whom all the promises of God rest, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the one who created the universe and holds it together by the power of His Word, the one who rules every moment that you will be in, every moment that you are confused by, I rule and I'm not confused, the I Am has come. Now hear me say this, if you're God's child, that's your identity. Your identity is that your life has been invaded by the person and power and grace of the one who is the I am. If you're a mom and you're at the end of a parental day that has been very difficult because your children have seemed to be particularly rebellious, and you're walking down the hallway once again to confront your children, you can say to yourself, I can't deal with this. I can't take this anymore. Why does this happen to happen to me? Or you can say, my life has been invaded by the I am. I'm not alone in this moment. The I am is with me. If you're facing disappointment in your marriage, and you've got things to deal with, you don't know how you're going to deal with them. You can get desperate and depressed and envious of other people, or you can say, I'm not alone in this marital moment because my life has been invaded by the grace of the one who is the I am. If you've lost your job in a shocking moment where some executive in a different city 
ruling the corporation has made a decision to end your department and you don't know what you're going to do and you're driving home to face your family, you better say to yourself, this moment, I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this car. The I am has invaded my life by His grace. If you've just faced disloyalty in a relationship or someone has done something to you that you don't think you can get beyond, you better say to yourself, I'm not alone in this emotional moment. The I am has invaded my life by His grace. If you're facing physical sickness and now you're confronted with the frailty of your body and you don't know where this is going to go and you're, you're flooded with questions and what-ifs about what the future will look like, you better say to yourself, I'm not alone. My life has been invaded by the grace of the one who is the I Am. Well, look at your Bibles. Finally, Jesus gets into the boat. He's made his point. He's redefined the world for these people. You see, the gospel is not just a theology. It's not just a means of entrance into relationship with God. Praise God, it's that. It's not just a future hope for eternity. The gospel provides for you a radically different way of looking at everything in life. The gospel is meant to define everything you think about yourself, everything you think about your world, everything you think about meaning and purpose, everything you think about joy and sadness and difficulty and peace. It's all different because you know, the person and the presence of the I am. Well, it says he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly amazed. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. It's not a compliment. That's not a compliment. Mark is not saying something nice about the disciples at that point. In fact, this is one of the few places where Mark makes editorial comments. You don't get many editorial comments from Mark in Mark's gospel. If you're reading Luke, you get all, all the time because that's the way Luke was. He was a historian. He was always saying things about it. Mark just gives you history, sticks Jesus in front of your face, and makes you face who He is. But he can't resist a comment here because Mark understands that there's a significant, even profound difference between amazement and faith. You see, this is not for these men a moment of faith, but it is for them a moment of amazement. Amazement sort of is something that you do with your brain. Amazement is when your, your brain is taken beyond all the categories that you have to define or explain something. You just don't have any categories for explaining what you're now dealing with. This should not have been a moment of amazement for these guys. Because they had plenty of reason for expecting what was there happening. Let me give you a silly definition, a word picture of amazement. Pretend we're standing outside of the building here. And as we're talking, up drives this low-slung, bright yellow European sports car. 
I mean, it's, it's about this tall at its highest point. And it's got this throaty roar of a 12-cylinder engine. And when the engine turns off, gullwing doors open up. And the man driving it sort of slithers out of the car because he's more laying down than sitting down. Well, you're just sort of transfixed. And so you walk around the car and you, you just, you're just amazed by it. And you, you ask the man if, if maybe you could sit inside the car. And you try to get your body in there, sort of hurt your back, because it doesn't sit like a normal car does. And as you're in there, it seems more like a rocket ship than an automobile. You get, get out of the car, and you can't resist asking that impertinent, sort of impolite question. You just can't resist. You say, how much did this cost? And the man says... I'll give you American money here. 450,000 American dollars. Now, at that point, you're pretty impressed. His cell phone rings. He hops back into the car. That engine bursts to life again. The gullwing doors close. He puts it in gear, and it levitates out of sight. (laughs) Now you're amazed. Because you have no categories for explaining what you just saw. You see, you can be amazed by the preaching you hear every Sunday and not be living by faith. You can be amazed by the love of a small group and not be living by faith. You can be amazed by wonderful worship music and not be living by faith. You can be amazed by the tight, beautiful logic of the theology of the Word of God and not be living by faith. You can be amazed by the grand redemptive story that's revealed in Scripture and not be living by faith. You can be amazed by all the resources that are now available to us in Christian literature and not be living by faith. There is a significant, even profound difference between amazement and faith. And look what Mark says at the end, his editorial comment. For they did not understand about the loaves, for their heart was heartened. When he says they didn't understand about the loaves, what he's saying is they hadn't learned their lessons. Every miracle is a gospel lesson. Every miracle is meant to preach the gospel, to define who Jesus is. And these guys hadn't learned their lesson, and the reason they hadn't learned their lessons is here it is. Bottom line, their hearts were hard. Yes, it is true. You can be a believer and have a hard heart. You can be a follower and have a hard heart. Now think of the metaphor. The metaphor is, the word picture is of a stony heart. Think with me, pretend with me, that I'm holding a stone in my hand right now. You with me? And pretend that I squeeze it with all of my might. What do you think is going to happen? Well, look at the size of my arms. The answer is pretty clear. Nothing. Because that that rock, that stone, is resistant to change. That's what hard-heartedness is. It's a picture of resistant to change. It's... A a soft clay would be malleable. It would be moldable. But these men weren't. They were resistant to change. And the reason they were resistant to change is because it's very clear, you see it in Mark, they're all too satisfied with where they are. 
And they're more concerned about who's going to have the best seat in the final kingdom than they are about being transformed by the grace of the one who has invaded their lives. They're all too satisfied, and so they have a hard heart. My dear wife, Luella, and I gave birth to a son who just didn't understand the concept of gifts. We would go out and buy him some kind of toy for a birthday or for Christmas. He invariably did this. He would tear open the box, discard the toy, and play with the box. It drove me crazy. It happened again and again. So there was one Christmas where I dragged my dear wife Luella out on the quintessential quest to find the ultimate Justin gift. I was going to stay out there till we found something that I was sure he would play with. Well, we found, we finally found that gift being out there longer shopping than we probably should have. And when it came to Christmas for him to open that particular gift, we were surely more excited than he would have ever been. He tore open the box like a little boy would, not thinking of recycling, and actually began to play with a toy. I had such feelings of parental victory. I went into the kitchen to uh, get something to drink and was engaged in a conversation with one of my other uh, family members. And after a few minutes, I went back into the living room where he was. And he was sitting in the box. Now, you may think, why is this man telling us this cute family story at the end of this sermon? Here it is. You have been given the most awesome gift that you could ever be given. It's a gift that's gorgeous from every perspective. It's the one gift every human being who's ever taken a breath desperately needs, whether they know it or not. It's the only gift that you could ever be given that has the power to radically change you and everything about you. This gift changes your destiny. This gift redefines everything in life. And this is a gift you could have never earned. You could have never achieved. You could never deserve. It's the gift of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm convinced of this. That in the face of being given that gift, many of us are content to play with the box. We're content with a little theological knowledge. We're content with a little bit of biblical literacy. We're content with episodic moments of ministry. We're content with maybe a little bit better marriage, a little more insight in parenting. But we're not holding on to that gift of grace with a combination of sadness and celebration and saying, I'm not going to let go of this gift of grace till it's done everything it was meant to do for me. I'm going to be where this gift is promoted. I want to be with other people who love this gift. I want to study and learn about this gift. I've been given the gift of grace. There really is a huge difference between amazement and faith. I would ask you this morning, are you holding on to that gift of grace with both hands, understanding that it has totally redefined you and everything about you? Or are you content to play with the box? You know, maybe you would 
be here this morning, you would say, Paul, I don't think I'm always one who lives by faith. I think there is in me a lot of doubt. I think there are moments where, even as God's child, I question His goodness. Well, I would say to you, you don't have to live in shame. You don't have to hide in fear. Because Jesus is your righteousness. And you can run into the presence of a holy God, broken and weak and failing as you are, and cry out once again for His mercy and His forgiveness and His power. Maybe you're here this morning, and you would say, I don't think I've ever exercised that faith. I don't think I know this one who is the I Am. I do feel like it's me against the world and it's such a heavy burden to bear. I would plead with you this morning, don't wait. Cry out for Him right here, right now. Cry out for His mercy. Cry out for His forgiveness. Cry out for His presence and His power. Right here, right now, this morning, maybe for the first time, place your life in the hands of the one who is the I Am. If you don't know how to do that, you know what it means when I get done praying, grab the person next to you and say, can you help me? I want to know the one who is the I Am. The I Am has invaded our lives by His grace. How can we be content to play with the box? Let's pray.